three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I am joined by journalist and author of the book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power, Max Chafkin, to explore issues including some of the most powerful criticisms levied against billionaire investor and entrepreneur Peter Thiel, and why exactly he is such a polarizing figure. All about Peter Thiel's rivalry with Elon Musk and his mentorship of Mark Zuckerberg. Peter Thiel's behind-the-scenes machinations in the 2016 presidential election and his financial support of a half-dozen senatorial campaigns. And finally, how Peter Thiel's anti-establishment mindset has shaped the culture of Silicon Valley over the last two and a half decades. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I'm back. Um, it has been a long three months without Nervous Habits Pod in my life, um, as I'm sure it has been for you as well. <laughs> I'm sure that all you guys are waking up, checking Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Oh, did he come out with a new one? Is he back from hiatus? Um, but you know, I, I couldn't stay away. I have too much to say, too many uh, you know, crazy opinions and questions and curiosities eating away at me to share with all you guys in this neurotic community that we built over these last two and a half, almost three years um, so in the words of Bo Burnham, I made you some content. I made you your favorite, open wide. Uh, sorry, I just watched his Netflix special <clears throat> last week and the songs have been stuck in my head for the last like literally like six, seven days. Can't stop, can't stop singing it. Um, so it's a beautiful October day. Uh, it's not raining for a change as I sit here and record these openings. Um, usually, usually I look out my window and it's, it's dark and gloomy, but I got my extra large caramel coffee from Dunkin' on my left, on my right, uh, Penny, uh, who is now almost nine months, believe it or not. Uh, Penny, the puppy, is waiting for me to finish podcasting so I can give her <clears throat> all my attention. But I'm, I'm you know, really pumped uh, to get the pod uh, back off the ground after the, the nearly three-month hiatus. In case you're new to the pod, I like to <clears throat> do these mini introductions after I come back from hiatus. In case I picked up some new listeners in the interim, um, in case you know somehow the algorithm on Spotify or Apple or Amazon Music or Google Podcasts fed you uh, this under suggested podcasts, uh, Nervous Habits is a show which is sort of built around big ideas and big questions in psychology and philosophy and tech, and I like to revolve each episode around uh, a concept or an innovation or an idea and basically spoon feed it to all you guys in digestible form along with my weekly experts who are usually folks in um, in technology, in the media, um, or in academia uh, who know far more about these issues than I do. Um, and also to have some fun and to laugh and to you know be self-deprecating. And I do that a lot of my bonus episodes too, which um, we'll have plenty of in the coming months. But for now, I wanted to profile a book that's been making a lot of waves in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's been featured in the New York Times and Slate, Fortune Magazine, Guardian, Financial Times. And it's called The Contrarian um, by Max Chafkin. And it, it profiles a man who some of you might be familiar with, some of you may not be, uh, but it's Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L, uh, not Thiel, which I incorrectly uh, pronounced it at the beginning of my conversation with Max, but Peter Thiel, like the color. And 
And I guess for those of you who aren't familiar with Peter Thiel, uh, Peter Thiel is you know one of the most influential venture capitalists and investors in Silicon Valley, if not in all of America. Um, he's someone who who built. Uh, PayPal. Uh, he's one of the co-founders of PayPal, which is worth nearly $300 billion in 2021. He built another company called Palantir, which Max, Max Chafkin and I talk all about in our conversation, um, which popularized the, the concept of data mining after 9-11 and, and paved way for what a lot of people call surveillance capitalism. Um, he's also the leader of, of what's called the PayPal ma- uh, Mafia, um, which is uh, sort of a network of, of uh, investors who provided the early capital to companies like Airbnb and Lyft and Spotify and Stripe and of course um, to Facebook. If, if you guys saw the, the social network, uh, Peter Thiel was was the man who actually invested half a million dollars into Facebook um, when it was you know basically just a startup. Uh, and and so in addition to being one of the most influential people in in Silicon Valley, one of the people along with Bezos and Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg who made Silicon Valley what it is, he's also a very polarizing guy. Um, and part of that has to do with his politics. Teal is sometimes portrayed as the tech industry's token conservative. He's someone who backed, um, president Trump in 2016 when, you know, no other CEO or or businessman would, would go anywhere near the Trump campaign. Um, uh, Teal is someone that was, was, uh, ardently publicly supportive of, of, of president Trump. So he's polarizing for that. And he's also enigmatic. You know, he's, he's, he's elusive. He's someone who, much like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, it's hard to really get a sense of what he really believes and what he really thinks. He's not someone who shares his personal life with the world. He's more, more secretive about it. And that's why I think a book like The Contrarian was so interesting to read and to discuss with Max because it does pull the cover back a little bit on Peter Thiel, the man, you know, in addition to Peter Thiel, the businessman, and Peter Thiel, the entrepreneur, Peter Thiel, the, the you know, political activist – we also sort of explore his motivations, right? And and uh, much like I've read books on other Silicon Valley uh, business leaders and and how people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have grown up and and how that's weaved into their adult life. Uh, that that's something that I enjoyed about uh, about Max's book, The Contrarian, is that you you can sort of look at experiences that uh, Peter had in his childhood and and draw a line between. Um, you know, his having been bullied, which we'll discuss, and his anti-establishment ideologies, right? Um, so I, I love, I love that that the book explores um, sort of, you know, more about his motivations. I also like that it covers a lot of ground. I mean, you know, we do talk about technology and business and entrepreneurship, but the book also weaves in politics and history and 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 you know, media culture. So you know, I, I did learn an awful lot from reading the book and from talking to Max, not just about Silicon Valley, uh, but also about the Trump administration and uh, the role that that Peter Thiel and his companies played in you know in, in the election of Trump and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which which we'll talk about. And it actually coincides. It's a very timely interview for a number of reasons, but it coincides with my with my coursework in law school this semester. Because um, I'm taking a couple classes on corporate law, and we're learning about um, investment and equities and IPOs and, and venture capitals, and it did help me understand the mechanics of uh, Peter Thiel's, uh, you know, investment um, in companies like Facebook 
and um, you know, and and it also helped me understand his his feud with Elon Musk. You know, th- th- there's a part of that interview which we'll discuss where Elon Musk was essentially pushed out of PayPal, and there were sort of factions in the board of directors, right, insurgencies and incumbencies. And so, to those listening who have taken corporate law, you know what I'm you know what I'm referring to. To all those, it just probably sounds like gibberish. But but all this to say, like I was better equipped to understand this conversation. Um, with Max than I was maybe like a year ago. But it is a very fascinating conversation. And the last thing I'll say um, is a little bit of background on Max Chafkin. Uh, Max Chafkin is a features editor and a tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek. His work has also appeared in Fast Money, Vanity Fair Inc., and the New York Times Magazine. And he lives in Queens, New York with his wife and their children. I should have asked him if he's a Mets fan. (laughs) But uh, without further ado, oh, oh, the last thing I'll say actually before I lead into the interview, it is sort of one of my longer interviews an hour and a half, uh, but there's still a lot of, of um, stuff that, that we didn't get to cover just because of the breadth of, of subject material in the book. Um, so I do do a, a pretty extensive dissection after the episode is done. Also, my audio was a little bit weird um, during the episode. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's this new mic that I got or uh, or something with the with the conversion in the file or whatever, but um, hopefully you'll bear with me on the audio. Max's audio is, is crisp and excellent, but um, on my end. Uh, but I think I think that's it. So without further ado, my conversation with Max Chafkin. Max Chafkin, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thank you for having me, Ricky. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate you making the time. There's so much to unpack uh, with this book, Max. And I guess the best place to start is the title, The Contrarian. I'm wondering you know, where this characterization came from. Did Peter Thiel call himself a contrarian or is this just universally how everyone has regarded him? Well, it's kind of both. Um, he, it, it's definitely like an identity that he has embraced. Um, it kind of gets to the heart of his, um, both of his, like his investment philosophy, which is to like to, to go against the herd. Um, and, uh, w- but, but he kind of views that investment philosophy as sort of a life philosophy. And, and, you know, as he's, he's written about it in terms that, that sort of go beyond investing. It's also, um, you know, I think the way a lot of people see him as just this guy who 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 has these weird kind of slightly crazy um, uh, views on things. I, I wanted to pick um, a title that was ambiguous because, of course, contrarianism. I, you know, I, I think Teal is is a is a proud contrarian, but but you know, there are ways that you can criticize contrarianism, and I talk about this in the book where you know. Um, uh, sometimes there's like a question of whether somebody who's like just trying to do the opposite of what everyone is doing is necessarily like thinking for themselves or are they just kind of like reacting to people? And, um, you know, there've been critiques of Teal that have been kind of focused on the contrarianism. I think uh, famously Jeff Bezos said, you know, when asked about Teal, he said, you know, the thing about contrarians is they're, they're usually wrong. Now I think uh, Teal's done very well with his investment philosophy. And, and I thought, I thought it was kind of cool because, like I said, there, there are these different layers to it. There's like a, a, a business layer, a philosophical layer, and there's an extent to which, um, you know, it, it could be something you admire about him, but it could also be something that um, is worthy of criticism. And of course, I think all of those things are have, have truth to them. It's funny that you mentioned the Bezos quote, Max, because actually that's, I, I did a bunch of Googling. I was like, I wonder, you know, how he got this contrarian nickname. And I saw that as soon as Teal donated the 1 million to the Trump campaign in 2016, and we'll talk all about that, Bezos said, as you said, you have to remember, uh, he's a contrarian, contrarians are usually wrong. So I thought um, the title, sort of to your point, does does sort of encompass the um, the the virtues and the vices of, of being a contrarian. 
And you actually had the benefit of meeting with, with Peter Thiel in person before writing the book. So for folks who, for everyone, I guess, who hasn't had the pleasure of meeting him, how would you sort of describe his composure, his disposition? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I approached the book um, as a journalistic project. Thiel is, Peter Thiel is just, you know, really, really secretive. It's part of what, what sort of drew me um, to the project. He's somebody who, you know, I've covered the tech industry. That's kind of my day job um, for the last uh, 16 or so years. And, you know, he's been sort of everywhere and nowhere. You know, he's sort of making these uh, making investments in, in 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 every tech company you've heard of, and and having this huge impact um, both in tech and and in politics, um, but also keeping a, a sort of a weird, weirdly low profile. You know, rarely he he does he does give speeches, he does write, but he doesn't um, speak to the press all that often. And even when he does speak to the press, it's very often um, in settings that are super controlled. So talking about like a a conference where there's a moderator, a moderator is pretty friendly. Um, you know, where, where Teal doesn't have to answer a lot of, um, you know, difficult questions, is able to kind of control a conversation. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, sought his cooperation for this book and, and uh, you know, spent, I don't know, um, like a, a couple of years, basically, trying to, to convince him um, in various ways to talk to me, including... Um, this meeting that you you, you mentioned uh, uh, basically uh, flew out to LA um, uh, where his uh, where his investment firm's uh, his main sort of family office that their the 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 office is located mm-hmm. and met with him that that meeting was um, off the record so I can't share any specifics of sort of what we talked about um, I, I I had I have met Teal a couple times actually before that as I said he's kind of been everywhere and I think you know dispositionally. You know, he he loves. He's like very comfortable talking in kind of abstractions and and ideas, and so sort of talking about oh, you know, his his take on you know X Y Z issue, whether it's a political issue or a tech issue. He's not somebody who's super comfortable um, talking about himself or talking about his own, say, his motivations, his background, um, kind of like why he's doing the things he's doing. Um, and and that's part of the reason why kind of I wanted to write the book because because all that stuff has been. Um, sort of mysterious. Um, his, you know, he's he he exudes both, I guess, um, uh, a little bit of uh, of he he exudes power. I mean, he's he's like clearly a powerful person, and and there's a there are little bits and pieces I, I think in the book uh, from from the conversation that speak to that. Uh, as I describe in the book, you know, he 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 just left um left our meeting without really taking leave in any way which right. which was kind of was very weird kind of a power move it's, it struck me anyway as a power move um and uh you know it's a sort of way way to a kind of assert um uh dominance um um but he and he also exerts uh exudes you know menace i mean he's somebody who has uh, and maybe this is something that i feel more deeply as a journalist but um you know he's somebody who has um uh, uh, uh put money into this, into a litigation campaign that, right. that destroyed a major American media company. And so, so, so that's there too. So it's kind of like this kind of really brainy, super secretive, super calculating, maybe bordering on um, uh, conniving um, and just totally fascinating. Yeah. Max, I appreciate you sharing all that. And we're going to unpack a lot of the criticisms later with respect to how litigious he is, um, how he can sort of, you know, hold a grudge, uh, how right. he can calculate in that respect. I, I, I appreciated you mentioned that, you know, he's not someone that likes to talk about himself much in the book. You talk about how, uh, Max Levchkin, the co- co-founder of, P- of PayPal, um, said that on one occasion, 
uh, Teal asked about his girlfriend and, and he was surprised because, uh, you know, because Teal is not someone to ever talk about personal lives or ask about personal lives. So I think that sort of lends more credence to your your point that he's just he's yeah. closed off in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, he's somebody who is um, super secretive on, on multiple levels. It's not just, I mean, this was a really hard book to report and not just because um, the Gogger stuff's hanging over. It's hard to report because because oh. Peter Thiel himself doesn't really tell people about um, you know, these, these kinds of like, he hasn't, he hasn't shown a lot of people, I guess, like his humanity, right. He's somebody who really dwells in the realm of ideas. And I think, of course, I'm interested in those ideas and the book is partly about those ideas, but I do think understanding somebody, you know, kind of like where they came from, um, mm-hmm. you know, what they were like as a kid. Um, I think that helps, um, that can help kind of like make those ideas make a lot, a little bit more sense. Um, and, and can help us, you know, whatever, understand them in a more, in a more, uh, you know, full way, which is why I was trying to do it. And that's what I loved about your book. And, and I don't know, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I really enjoy reading about how these brilliant, you know, once in a lifetime entrepreneurs like Teal, like Bezos, like Musk, how they grew up. Because I, I found that there's always sort of these subtle indications that these people just don't quite fit in with their peers. And I saw that in a number of places in your discussion of, of Teal as, as a child. Yeah, I mean, he had a difficult childhood. And I think maybe, I mean, he's 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 talked about this at various points. He's talked about himself being a, you know, an outsider. And I think um there th- that's true on a bunch of different dimensions. And I think it 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 helps it probably helps explain um his success. Um and I I want to get into that in a second. And also kind of the way he is, his he has this, he has a certain um his guard seems to be up all the time. And, and I think that also comes from, from this childhood. His, so his parents were, were immigrants, uh, from, from, um, Germany, um, and, uh, super conservative, uh, very, uh, you know, evangelical Christians, uh, and, and they moved around a lot. They, they bounced from Cleveland. They moved, the family moved, his dad got a job in South Africa. Um, they sort of bounced around in Southern Africa, uh, for a while, came back to, um, to the United States and, and Teal ultimately kind of settled down in California, Northern California. And, you know, I think the, the kind of like immigrant thing, the bouncing around, not having a lot of close friends, uh, that, that probably played into sort of what happened in, in junior, junior high school, excuse me, and in college in, in high school and college, which is, you know, he was bullied. I mean, he did not have many close friends. Um, he was really, he's very smart, um, very good chess player, um, and very introverted. And, you know, those, those things of course always go, I think go hand in hand with, with bullying. And when, on top of that, I think there, he had a feeling and, and it's a feeling that kind of it still comes through in, in, in his, uh, in, in when he speaks and writes and stuff of, of this kind of political, a sense of political persecution, which I think we can talk about whether that's a fair sense or an unfair sense, but I think he really processed, you know, coming to Northern California, being in this very conservative family, he really processed like the the kind of liberal aspect of of California as being you know hostile to him and 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 it felt you know uncomfortable um, as as somebody from a, a relatively you know conservative family, a very conservative family actually in in this kind of California, um, and 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 so I think especially as he got older and, and in, in later high school and then in college kind of processes the, um, his kind of the, the bullying as something having to do with politics, which I think it, it sometimes did, but I don't think it was like when I talked to some of the people who bullied him for this book and I don't think they weren't like folk, you know, and, and of course they didn't, they weren't like, 
they felt bad about it in retrospect. Um, but but I don't think they were really focused on on politics. But but that is how um, Teal processed it. And 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 as he started to come into his own, started to sort of you know um, do these entrepreneurial ventures. The first of which, the the first real one anyway, was this uh, this newspaper that he started at college called the Stanford Review. It's this like deliberately provocative. Um, uh, hard right newspaper where it's all about trying to find ways to like, you know, subtly tweak or actually often not so subtly, right? Um, uh, to, to to tweak or to mess with or whatever um, the uh, what he perceived as kind of the the elite preoccupations um, and, you know, kind of kind of mess with the lefties. I think nowadays we talk about um, you know, the, the phrase trolling is, is, is something I think people understand. And I think they were kind of doing that, right. They were, they were sort of trolling the administration, trolling the libs or, or whatever. And, and you can draw, I think you can draw a line actually to, we could talk about this, but like you could draw a line, I think between Teal's kind of college activism um, and not just, and some of the stuff he's gotten involved with, um, you know, more recently, but also just, I think the alt-right, I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the, when you look at what the alt-right was doing, uh, a lot of that was very similar to what, you know, Peter Teal did, and, and what other uh, conservatives on college campuses were doing back in the you know mid to late 80s. Yeah. And, and you know, you talk a lot in the book about some of these experiences having uh, uh, of him being the, the subject of bullying. And there was one you know, encounter that stood out to me where you said that classmates would drive around the neighborhood looking for houses with for sale signs and they would just put them on Peter's house. And you mentioned that one of the pranksters um, spoke to you and, and expressed remorse. But the, but he said this, Max, and this stood out to me. Um, I've always thought that he might have a list of people he's going to kill somewhere and that I'm on it. Uh, and that was, that was a very striking quote that, that, uh, <laughs> one of the bullies gave to what, like 30, 40 years later. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think like when you, when you talk about, when you talk to people, you know, from that era, right. He just, he just read as this kind of really brainy alien, right. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they saw him as, um, uh, like uh, as weird because he was religious or weird because he was conservative. He was weird because he was like super introverted and super guarded and had this clear, you know, this clear like me against the world thing, which of course the bullying then kind of plays into, right? And it further reinforces it. And so, so, so yeah. And, and I, I mean, a lot of people, I, I, I do think that that kind of feeling and that experience is something that, I mean, it's obviously the things that happened to us when we were kids make us who we are. I do think it it, it maybe helped give him um, uh, some of his his like power because you know first of all um, that outsider perspective right that's that really goes hand in hand with his kind of investment philosophy. Like if you if you're convinced that like they're just these crowds of people who are out to get you um, and 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 like you have to think differently than them. You know that's that's kind of I think an obvious place where, where, where the contrarianism probably comes from. He's also talked about, I didn't mention it, but of course he, he's gay and he, um, you know, he was back then not, you know, not, not openly gay. Um, he, he came out, um, you know, much later. So, I mean, there's another way, right. Of course, where, um, you know, another, another dimension to being, to, to outsiderness and to, and to feeling, um, like you don't quite belong. Um, and, 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 and I also think that in addition to, you know, maybe giving him some, some perspective or, or whatever, that, you know, the world is against you, that you, that you have to be, you have to adopt this aggressive, you know, super aggressive pose, um, with respect to the world. Like it, it's probably pretty useful. I mean, even though I think it's, it's like psychologically unhealthy, right. It's probably not a great, um, uh, it's, it, you know, it's not a recipe I think for like, you know, 
happiness, but it is, I think maybe a recipe for, for success because like, just, you know, feeling like you have to prove people wrong, feeling like, you know, like you need to whatever to, to, to sort of scheme your way through life. Like, I think all those things, you know, probably have helped him and probably have made him, you know, the, the very, very successful person that he is. It's motivating. I mean, it's, it's, it fuels his, a lot of his rivalries, which we'll talk about, um, uh, you know, fuels his, his hatred for the big establishment in politics and in tech right. world, uh, you know, with, with companies like Google. Um, and I think you can really draw a line. And, and the last thing I, I want to ask you with respect to his childhood, Max, um, there were a couple of really compelling anecdotes that I enjoyed reading about. Do you want to maybe just share um, the story of, of uh, what happened when when Teal was pulled over for driving over the speed limit? I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, he he's a, he was very it's weird to say this because he in because, um, you know, he introverted nerd. I, I don't know. Somehow like this feels a little bit discordant to me, but he was a very aggressive driver, uh, very aggressive, drove really fast. And um, there's an anecdote in the book where he's driving um, to Monterey from uh, Palo Alto uh, to for a, a chess tournament with the chess team. He's at, he's at the wheel of this kind of old, you know, uh, Volkswagen Rabbit, kind of a, a crappy old car, um, German car. He's German, uh, German uh, born. So maybe maybe that was part of the appeal. But in any case, it's like a very small car. Uh, and, uh, and he's just, you know, the, the account that was shared with me is, you know, he's just like hammering the accelerator and, and the road from, um, uh, basically Silicon Valley to Monterey, there's like this very twisty, um, four lane highway, uh, that, that goes through the mountains and it's super dangerous. Like the most dangerous, I think it's uh, California 17 mm -hmm. and it's like, you have to cross a mountain. It's, it's very twisty. Um, there's weird and unexpected weather changes. You've got wild animals in the hills there that will, you know, deer and lions and stuff that'll dart to the road. Um, and as a result, it's like the, it's like the most dangerous, um, highway in California or one of the most dangerous highways in California. And he's sort of weaving his way and, you know, tailgating and, you know, just, just driving as fast as he could possibly drive for no particular reason and totally freaking out, um, the rest of the people in the car. Um, and then he gets pulled over, of course. Right. And when the cop come, you know, pulls him over and this is, and the story was shared to me and it's, and it's in the book, but basically he talks his way out of the ticket, um, on constitutional grounds. He says that, uh, you know, you know, speeding, speeding is, is, is probably the government shouldn't be able to regulate it. And this is an infringement on his Liberty. And, you know, amazingly it works. He gets out of the ticket. And then the thing that really kind of blew um, you know, my source's mind on this, um, and this is, you know, somebody who's in the car and who remembers this, um, you know, remembers this, uh, remembers very little from, from college, but, but remembers this moment is that after getting pulled over, he hits the gas again and, um, and, and, and just kept driving, um, really, really fast. And, you know, it's this feeling like, uh, I, I talked about this. I mean, I think it's, I think there's something interesting about the, the fact that he's already interested in these like super libertarian, arguments, um, which was, that was definitely happening in college, but also that, you know, it's like, it's not just like, he doesn't think the law applies to him because it's, it's like, he doesn't believe that physics applies to him either, that he's going to violate that, that rule as well. And, um, and so, so I thought it was kind of a cool moment, just that kind of shows both the development of his, you know, intellectual poise, but also the way that he's kind of fashioning himself. And you see this in college and it's definitely, you know, come forward where, where's this, this guy was like sort of bullied um, a, as a kid 
um, sort of remakes himself into this kind of rebel, right? It's not 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 the same kind of rebel, not a not a convention, maybe not a conventional rebel, but but a rebel all the same, where he's you know breaking the rules and um, and and instead of um, whatever, it's not he wasn't a he wasn't a drinker or a drug user or anything like that. Um, the, maybe the conventional ways of rebelling, but he is rebelling against the system as he sees it and trying to use that as a way to like to lead people and to impress people and to gain followers. And I think that has happened, um, you know, many, many times since then, uh, you know, throughout his career. And I love that anecdote also, because it's, it's a, it's a nice segue into his very brief stint, uh, as, as a junior lawyer, right? Cause he, uh, attended Stanford law school. A lot of people don't know that about Peter Thiel. Um, but it never really seemed like Max, it never really seemed like he wanted to study law. It was more, perhaps uh, the, the prestige and the power that seduced him. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know who know. Like, I don't know why anyone says law, but no, just kidding. Um, I, I think that what he said, and I think it's probably worth taking him at his word on this is that, um, you know, he, he was really interested in this sort of like conventional academic achievement. Right. And like, like getting straight A's and there's an account in the book where he's like arguing with another classmate about who's, like 4.0 GPA is better, like trying to find some reason why his straight A's are better than some other dude's straight A's, right? And of course, like going to law school, particularly like a high high end law school like Stanford and doing it like right after college, you know, that's a like in some ways just like a, con- a continuation of like the the straight A's and the, and the sort of career track that he was on. And he's talked about um, you know, the law as, as that, as this kind of like, he's sort of bought into the system and, and so on. I mean, I think he wanted to be, I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous, right. But I think he wanted to like be a Supreme court justice. He, he, yeah. he, you know, he, he clerked for a federal judge. And I, I think he talked to people in that era about, about that ambition. Like he, he wanted to have a, a, you know, a career in sort of like very high end, um, public service. And, and he was on that, I mean, sort of on that track, right. He, he had a federal clerkship, um, and, and, and also give, I say like, given his politics, um, you know, he was sort of setting himself up for that, for some kind of career there. He had, he had interned at the, um, you know, inside the department of education, you know, as an undergraduate. Um, and then he got this, uh, you know, job at Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, one of the top, uh, law firms and was applying for, um, a Supreme clerk, uh, uh, a su- Supreme Court clerkship and didn't get it. And that kind of around the time that he didn't get it, that's when everything kind of fell apart. And he, you know, uh, basically dropped out of his his legal career and, and got a job um, in, in finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but even then he was still sort of trying to kind of like make it work, like be, be you know, excel in, in this sort of conventional way. So, okay. So, so Max, he moves back to California because you mentioned he was at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York for, yep. uh, for a short period of time, moves back to California and he's totally tra- undistinguished career at Sullivan and Cromwell, totally undistinguished career in fun- finance. He spent like six months in finance as well right. after, yeah, yeah, after that. And, and like, you know, talking to people who worked with him, it's like, they're like, oh, he's just some schmo. I mean, nobody's like, oh, this guy is like a real genius. He seemed like, uh, you know, somebody, uh, uh, somebody I talked to who worked with him during this era, and it's this is not in the book, but um, but you know, said like it's like a, he couldn't find his way out of a paper bag. I mean, he just seemed like uh, you know, just like not cut out for for this line of work. But as you say, yes, he gets back to California, and then he wanted to create his own hedge fund. I trouble, but like a lot of people, he had trouble scraping together um the funds, and this was in 1998, around the beginning of the the dot com boom. 
And you write that the first investment he made was in uh, the a company that linked Palm Pilot devices to corporate offices. So I don't know how old you are, but I actually remember using Palm Pilots growing up. Do you, do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, I'm 39. So Palm Pilots were, you know, a thing when I was in, uh, you know, high school and college. And my wife, I think, had a Palm Pilot. I give her a hard time about that. But uh, and what, what prompted him to take a chance on this venture? Because I know you write in the book that the founder was inexperienced and unproven. Yeah, well, I think so. OK, so the, the interesting thing about Teal is that, OK, he's he's all about not following the herd. Um, but um and it's interesting because like you would think the contrarian mindset, right, would be all about like not doing things that everybody else is doing. But but in practice, what he actually is often very good at is selling into a bubble, seeing a bubble and figuring out a way to, you know, basically sell a product into that bubbly market. And because you can always remember, like in, with a bubble, right, there are two ways to make money on it. Like one is to uh, short it to like bet against it, say like, oh, this is going to this is going to burst. Um, but that's actually probably harder than just um, trying to find some hot thing within that hot market and 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 just getting in on the gravy train for as long as it lasts. And 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 I think Teal. Uh, so so in other words, like Teal, I think because he's often thinking different is actually able to, to spot these bubbly markets um, and, and and find ways to get in on them. And and so he saw I mean, I think basically he was trying to figure out a way to make it as an investor. He saw that the, that that tech was kind of hot and he wanted to find a way in. Mm. And he basically meets this coder, Max Levchin, by chance um, on the Stanford campus in 1998. And at the time, Levchin is trying to start a company that will make software for Palm Pilots. The idea was encryption for Palm Pilots. So um, at the time, you know, people were not using them for, for like to, to run business software. Um, uh, but one of the reasons is because like to run business software, you need security. And so Levchin's idea original, the original idea that, 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 that later became PayPal was, um, was this thing called FieldLink, which was going to be like a, a, a way of doing encryption on Palm Pilots. Teal meets with him um, and basically decides to back him you know, over a meal. And I don't think he was particularly interested in the, um, in the, in the, in the specifics of the Palm Pilot uh, encryption idea. But I think the, what he saw in, in Levchin was that Levchin was really smart and that Levchin had, uh, knew a lot about encryption and um, was thinking in interesting ways and hadn't, you know, found anybody yet. And so he makes this modest investment and over the course of six months or so, they basically refined their idea and, and they refined the idea into away from, um, you know, you know, servicing corporate software and instead using the same encryption technology to send money between Palm Pilots. So, so the original PayPal was like, you would have your Palm Pilot. And I don't know if you remember, but the, the, around this time, Palm Pilot came out with a um, infrared uh, transmission and receiving like a, like, like on a remote control. So you could, you could actually infrared information, uh, between Palm pilots. So the idea was you would infrared your payment. You'd put the Palm pilots sort of together, send a payment. And then that's a little clumsy. Now you have to go back to your, like connect your Palm pilot to a modem and dial up and then, and it would settle the transaction. So it was originally like IOUs for Palm pilots. And it sounds pretty stupid. On the other hand, they, first of all, uh, pay, online payments were a hot area. 
and they were able to kind of very quickly transition from just Palm Pilots to, you know, email payments because the technology is basically the same. Like you could, you could send that IOU via email and then settle the transaction, you know, on the internet. It's actually a lot easier than, than having to like dial up, you know, with a Palm Pilot modem. And I, I think at the time, you know, the Palm Pilot had to be plugged into sort of like a dongle that was like the same size as the Palm Pilot and that had to be plugged. So, so anyway, yeah. so they, but they very quickly, right, figure out that actually we can just do this on the internet mm -hmm. um, and they um, start, uh, you know, processing payments and were just are discovered uh, fairly early by eBay sellers. eBay sellers at the time were um, trying to find any kind of way to, to, to move, move money around because eBay was exploding and, and it just goes from there. The thing that they did, they did a couple of things that I think were really smart because people tend to, um, uh, people tend to think that like the actual PayPal idea was some kind of brilliant notion, but really like there were so many pay payments companies back then. And they all like, I, I have a list of all the names. I don't know off the top of my head, but you know, they all have these like dopey names. It's like, it's like a, it's like a cliche of dot-com stuff where there mm -hmm. were like, you know, half a dozen startups there, like every bank had a online payment idea. Um, a lot of the big tech companies had online payments, um, you know, no, you know, programs or investments or whatever. Um, what, what PayPal did that, um, kind of set them apart was number one, they tried to grow really, really, really quickly, uh, much more aggressively than anybody else. Um, and number two, they just didn't follow normal banking rules. Like, like a lot of the banks that were trying to do payments were basically trying to do it as if, like, as if they were doing wire transfers or something like that, you know? And so to do a wire transfer, like you check IDs, you, you know, and, and basically PayPal just ignored a lot of the, a lot of the laws that, that were on the books um, for banks. Um, they were not a bank, so they were kind of able to get around that. And they spent millions of dollars uh, trying to grow. And, and what they did is pay, they basically pay, paid people money, paid, gave people a $10 credit to sign up for PayPal. Right. And it, and again, that sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like a really bad idea. If you're, a, if you're a bank, like, oh, you're going to uh, break the law or, you know, or, or maybe walk right up to the line on the law and get us in trouble with, you know, federal regulators. And you're going to spend, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars on something with uncertain prospects. Like, sounds like a great idea, right? A bank would never do that because a bank has a business, but they were able to grow and get market share very quickly at this crucial time, you know, when the internet was exploding and, and, you know, that kind of set them on the path. I mean, it set them on a path where they were able to, um, you know, build a successful business, even as the dot-com bubble eventually, you know, collapsed around them. And, and that success was, as I talk about in the book was, exceedingly influential. It's, it's really changed how it changed how everybody thought about startups. Um, mm. uh, and, and it's, and it's hugely, you know, the way like normal people, the way people are building businesses now, you know, often is, you know, owes a big debt to, 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 to those handful of decisions. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned that the, the online payment marketplace was pretty crowded at the time. And this company, the precursor to PayPal uh, was called, I believe, Confinity. Um, right. Infinity wasn't the only uh, digital currency company that was, uh, you know, uh, you know, making waves in the industry. Elon Musk at the same time, um, folks who listen to the podcast might have heard. I had someone on um, a couple episodes ago talking about Musk's companies and he created X.com. And you write in the book um, about how even though uh, Elon and Peter share a lot of the same ambitions, 
personality wise, Max, they could not be more different. Can you flush that out? Yeah, sure. Well, so the funny thing is, when I was saying there were so many of these companies, there there were so many that 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 these guys didn't even know that they were in the same building. I mean, uh, X.com, Musk's company, and Confinity, which became PayPal, um, Teal's company, were just across the hall from each other for for a little while, and um and they were and they were competing with each other. Um, Musk at the time, um, was already famous as an entrepreneur. He'd already sold a company. Um, he had more money. Uh, and, and, and it, basically in every way, like X.com looked like a, a, a better business than, than PayPal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's a credit. I'll, I'll tell you the story. What happened? It's, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing, uh, credit to Teal that, that, that he c- kind of came out on top as the, as the two men sort of, um, started to, you know, fight with one another. Um, at Musk is, you know, ex- Musk is an introvert as well, like Teal, but he's a different kind of introvert. He's really, he's, he's very in your face. Like he, he's, he's funny. He likes to provoke. He's, 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 and he's not calculating, right? He's somebody who basically um, often acts like very impulsively, often gets himself in trouble, you know, with the SEC. He's also, um, Teal's somebody who's always got an angle, right? Like, like he's got, he's a hedge fund guy. He's always sort of making, you know, he's often making like, uh, you know, his an investment, and then there's a different investment that he's making that's hedging against that investment. He's somebody who's always sort of um, measuring. You know, Musk is never measuring. Um, also, uh, you know, uh, Musk is like a micromanager, like the most epic micromanager of all time. You know, he's he's like really involved. I think his title, right at still at SpaceX, is like chief. Uh, you know rot designer or something, you know, he's, he's been actively involved in not just the design of these businesses, but, but literal, the design of the products, you know, down to the screws. And I've been in meetings, you know, over the years with him where he's like, really like, you know, scrutinizing something like that just seems unbelievably, um, you know, uh, unbelievably minuscule. Um, anyway, Teal is like, uh, if, so Musk is running hot and he's a micromanager. Teal's like a cold fish, and he is the opposite of a micromanager. He's somebody who um, likes to delegate. He also just likes to kind of like f- collect um, smart people and let them do their thing and sort of um, uh, you know give them encouragement. And and his and his you know his power is not doesn't come from being actively involved. It, it comes from his influence. Um, the um, they basically uh, as the dot com bubble uh, was collapsing. Uh, the Musk's company and Teal's company were two of the most successful and uh, two of the most successful payments companies. And they basically were persuaded to merge because it, because it's getting hard to survive, right? They're going to need to raise more money. So they merge. It's a 50, 50 merger. And, uh, but it's a 50 merger, but Musk, because he was the sole founder of X.com, his company has a lot more uh, equity than than Teal or Max Levchin. Musk is essentially he comes out of it as the senior partner, and he becomes CEO of this combined venture. Teal um, uh, is basically eased out. He leaves the company, um, and uh, and it looks like you know that's that. But uh, but again, Teal is an amazing. Um, he you know he's he's an amazing chess player, and basically six months into Elon Musk's tenure. He Musk goes on his honeymoon, and this is 2000, and uh, and he gets on the plane, and when he when he's in the air, um, a bunch of Teal's um, close friends, these are people from Stanford who he hired, who were still loyal to him and still worked at the company, 
uh, go to the office of Mike Moritz, the who is the main uh, investor in uh, PayPal, also one of the most, probably the most famous venture capitalist um, mm-hmm. at the time, maybe still. Um, he's kind of a legendary venture capitalist. And they present him with an ultimatum. And the ultimatum says, you either name Peter Thiel um, CEO and and fire Elon Musk, who is, as I said, you know, you know, seen as the more successful, you know, and and and, and the entrepreneur that Mike Moritz had actually backed, you know, or we're going to walk. And Moritz um, listens to them, and he agrees to their terms. And and Musk is deposed, and and Peter Thiel is installed as CEO. And uh, you know, it's so that's really interesting because just as I said, it it shows you the the kind of gamesmanship and the chess playing and stuff. Um, it's also interesting because um, it's like the only instance I can think of where somebody kind of like goes toe to toe with Elon Musk and gets the better of him mm. and kind of lives to tell. I mean, because <laughs> because Musk, um, it, Musk does not forgive easily. He does not. And he is somebody who does not take slights super well, um, but he accepted this. And not only accepted it, but um, but eventually, um, basically started working with Teal again, and 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 is able to continue the friendship. And I, you know, I talked to him about that for what I was reporting the book, and he kind of he basically said that you know he realized that he was better off having um, Teal as a friend than as an enemy. Mm-hmm. And I think that tells you, first of all, that tells you something about um, about how Elon thinks, um, but also tells you that you know that that. Elon, even even being, you know, this famous entrepreneur with this amazing, you know, cult of personality, you know, recognize that like he didn't that teal somebody you don't want to make enemies with. And um, and it worked out because, um, you know, basically eight years later or so or seven years later, Musk um, is in a bad way. The he's his rocket company's had a couple of launch failures. He's got, you know, he's uh, really, he's he's basically down to his last, uh, you know, his last pennies on his rock company's car company, and he's able to get uh, an investment from Teal in SpaceX, mm-hmm. um, and that investment, you know, I think saved SpaceX, and in some ways probably saved, you know, Musk. I mean, I think Musk would have found a way, you know, one way or the other to like, um, you know, to keep going, but but you know, it's a really crucial investment at a crucial moment. Um, and just kind of shows you the way that they, you know, it's a, they have a difficult relationship. They're like frenemies, but they also recognize that like they can, um, you know, that it's sometimes in their advantage to work together, to work closely together. And I think a lot of Teal's um, relationships work that way. They, these are not friendships that are necessarily defined by, you know, real like human affection. It's more like, it's more about uh, calculation. And, and in this case, it, it, you know, worked out for everybody. We have, you know, Elon has a rock company that is very successful and has, is taking, you know, astronauts and now I guess tourists, um, uh, into space mm-hmm. and Teal has a huge investment, um, in this company that's now worth something like, I don't know, last I checked something like a hundred million, a hundred billion dollars. So, so everybody did well, even though they had a, you know, even though they, uh, you know, even though Peter tried to coup Elon. Yeah, there were there were bumps along the way, though. I, I mean, you know, in the book, you write about how he was Teal was approached to invest in Tesla and he refused. And then there was needed to be some needling to get him to invest in SpaceX. So certainly, um, you know, I, I think uh, it sounded like Teal um, did sort of see the forest from the trees, uh, but it didn't sound like the most comfortable. relationship. No, not comfortable at all. I mean, and as you say, I think um, so I think there's some bad blood from the PayPal thing. Um, 
Teal was also offered a chance to invest in Tesla and and, and didn't and mm-hmm. and he didn't. Um, I think partly on ideological grounds. Like he does not share Musk's. You know, Musk's. I, I Musk. A lot of things are motivating Musk, of course, but like he's motivated by by desire to deal with climate change. And and Teal, um, you know, takes the. He, you know, he's probably Musk told me he thinks that Teal doesn't doesn't believe in climate change. Um, I think, you know, it's not entirely clear. Teal's kind of said that Teal sort of hinted that he's a climate denier. He's because he uh, during the Trump administration, he has two picks for um, chief scientists that he made to, to Donald Trump wow. were both uh, people who are, who are who are down on climate change, who, who are basically climate deniers. So so I think he was I think in, that was a case where um, he was maybe um you know, I would say I would argue that his he was blinded by the the ideology, both his kind of the conservative ideology, but also the kind of contrarian ideology, his desire to to like be different. I mean, as it's it gets back to the Jeff Bezos point, right? Just just being different isn't always a, you know the path to to being right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I think that would be a case where you know that was that was a big mistake. I mean, if getting into Tesla early would have been it would have been his best investment ever been better probably better investment even than the Facebook one and as you said yeah he was not super excited to invest in SpaceX in 2008 and he kind of I think he got pushed into it by his partners um and and by Elon and I think um it was a lot of risk right and he's somebody who doesn't who who is all about kind of limiting his risk but uh but but in that case it worked out I, I'm sure he wishes he had invested in Tesla, even though it goes against his, you know, even though Elon's, you know, uh, uh, buying into the consensus position on climate change probably, you know, bugs him on some level, but, but yeah. I mean, it would have been an amazing investment. For sure. And, and, and we'll turn to the investments of, of uh, Facebook and then his, his launch of Palantir in a moment, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up um, one of his other central feuds early in his, in his career, Max, and that's um, him butting heads with Meg Whitman, the CEO of eBay. So what exactly, and you, you devote a, a couple chapters in the book to um, yeah. sort of the on again, off again rivalry there, but what was their conflict about? I mean, I think basically uh, Whitman is, he saw Whitman and, and these PayPal guys saw Whitman as just like a total corporate square. And, um, and, and so like there was a, and she is right. Or, I mean, I don't know if that's a quite exactly the fair characterization, but she's like a conventional CEO. She had um, come to to uh, eBay by way, I believe by way of Mattel. She's like somebody who had taken a norm, sort of normal path to the C-suite. I think her big hit was the Teletubbies, which is a, I yeah. think that's a Mattel, um, uh, was a Mattel creation. Um, so anyway, so like there was a, I think there was a, uh, on, a on a personal level, but also, I mean, basically PayPal was, fighting with eBay more or less nonstop through its whole sort of startup career because eBay had its own payment platform and they were trying to keep eBay from uh, basically pushing off other payment platforms like eBay. It's kind of like in a weird way, it has echoes of what's going on now with like, you know, big tech and monopoly like eBay had effectively a monopoly on online auctions. And there wasn't a whole lot stopping it from just bouncing PayPal off its platform altogether, just telling sellers like, um, n- no, sorry, you have to use our own uh, uh, platform, which is called BillPoint. And what what Teal did, um, <clears throat> Teal and Reed Hoffman, who's now the founder of, um, or who became the founder of LinkedIn, who's like a close friend of, um, of Teal's, and David Sachs, who's another member of this kind of PayPal mafia crew, um, they were basically threatening... Um, 
uh, political advocacy, threatening to, you know, sort of to, to raise the antitrust um, scepter in Washington. And they were and they were making lots of donations at the time uh, to, you know, basically to people on, you know, the finance committee and things like that. And, and we're trying to say, you know, like you throw us off, we're going to, we're going to make this turn this into an antitrust issue, which is kind of interesting because first of all, it sort of goes against the libertarian teals, um, you know, supposedly a libertarian, but like, you know, playing the political game isn't, isn't exactly like a libertarian thing. Threatening to call Congress on your, on your business foes is not exactly like what we sort of expect from a, um, you know, sort of pure libertarian. Um, and it's also interesting because Teal later becomes sort of an advocate for tech monopoly, you know, writes a whole book about how the, the, the thing that companies should do is try to try to get monopoly. And so what I take away from that is basically that he's he's a little bit more flexible than than kind of like the marketing would lead you to believe. I mean, I think he's somebody who um, is very clever about um, sort of using ideology and using politics for um, you know, for business purposes and coming up with an ideological story or a political story to justify something he's trying to achieve. Um, but I think often he's motivated by like trying to find a position that's going to work for his business, work for himself and, and, and so on. So it sounds like the it was more of a pragmatic consideration to eventually call off the feud um, with with uh, Meg Whitman and and um, and accept the, the offer for, for them to purchase PayPal. Um, and years later, after that, Max, he, he actually had uh, a rivalry with with Google. And I think some of this, um, you know, uh, folds into his, his political leanings. And we talked about anti-establishmentism. But um, what was, you know, what was his objection to, to Google as, as, a, as a service? I mean, I think his objection to Google, like, is has mo- most to do with the fact that Google is a competitor to many of the companies he's an investor in. Um, to, but OK, so what he's talked about, he sort of hinted that he thinks that Google um, may have a monopoly uh, in, you know, in a, a, now, now it's, it's weird because he, as I said, he wrote a book saying that like the purpose of business is to have a monopoly. And he even includes Google as sort of an example, like of, of, of tech companies, like having monopolies. Um, but, but then at various points, he's sort of suggested that it might be an illegal monopoly or it might be a monopoly that is, um, <clears throat> is different from the, from the kind of good kind, whatever that means. Um, uh, he's also, um, when he, as he is sort of, um, sort of advocacy against Google kind of ramped up, he's also accused them of, of being, um, of being somehow captured by China. And I think that's a, it's a, he gave a speech in 2019, actually, that I was there. I was there for the speech. Um, I think it's a, it's pretty spurious allegation. I mean, Google has, Google doesn't operate in China, um, uh, but what he was talking about and hasn't for quite a lo- quite a while. Um, what he was talking about was the fact that Google has at times tried to get back into China and get, get in, getting back in China has involved negotiations with um, the Chinese government, um, and at the same time, Google had been um, uh, sort of pushing away from a defense a contract that. Uh, it had with the Department of Defense. It sort of ba- basically backed out of a Defense Department contract uh, to help build software to target drone strikes um, on the grounds. A bunch of Google employees uh, basically objected to the idea that their sort of software would be used to like to to do targeted killings, like you know, saying like I don't want to you know I, I don't want to have blood on my hands. Um, and and Teal takes those two things and makes this argument saying that 
they must be infiltrated by the Chinese government. We should investigate. He says that the CIA and FBI should investigate this and they should not do it gently. And as I said, I don't, I, I don't think there's a lot, there's no evidence offered there. It's, it's sort of a way to kind of create a, a little uh, stir the pot and get Trump to tweet about it, which he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I think bring some scrutiny uh, against Google. And I, and I think, but like I said, I, I'm not sure there's really an ideological or any kind of coherent ideological complaint against Google. I think it's more about Google's main competitor, Facebook, it's a competitor Palantir, his defense company. And so like, you know, um, going after it and raising issues that one could also make these complaints about Facebook, for instance, or many of these complaints. Um, it kind of, it kind of does the, it kind of just sort of directs the attention of Donald Trump and the American political establishment away from uh, the companies that Teal's involved with and towards this, this other company, Google. Yeah. And it further, uh, you know, lends support to his, his characterization as, as a contrarian, right? Um, right. I, I want to turn to uh, Facebook and, and to Palantir first with respect to Facebook. Um, obviously, you know, most people have to know one thing about Peter Thiel. They know that he uh, was the first investor into Facebook, uh, half a million dollars. Uh, but you note in the book that he he wasn't super keen on buying stock in tech companies. So, you know, why, Max, did he make an exception for Facebook? Well, I think um, he at the time he was really he was trying to make himself into a hedge fund manager. That was his main focus. And and he's one thing that I think Teal's really I mean, I, I think people who have who are who are who have contradictions and who sort of change their mind, like they're just inherently very interesting Teal, if you had asked like the average Wall Street Journal reader in like 2005, 2006, like who's this guy, Peter Teal? People would say, well, oh, he's he's a very successful hedge fund manager. He has one of the most successful hedge funds. And because um, at the time, like he was his hedge fund was, you know, kind of he was being compared to George Soros. He was he was really, you know, on fire. um, uh shorting the uh the real estate market and betting on the price betting on oil to go up and you know doing things that really have nothing to do with uh tech investing but he did have these friends um uh, from his paypal days why did he so he and he made a couple of investments not just in facebook but uh, you know he invested in linkedin uh, you know and and i think a couple other social networks as well um and but i think the appeal of facebook was uh sort of twofold so like one is i think he saw that you know this company was growing very quickly and growing in a way that was kind of similar to um, to PayPal's growth. Um, I also think you know he's talked about this and we take it for what it's worth. But like the kind of contrarian, you know, he's interested in being different. Like maybe that gave him some sort of insight into the power of social networks because social networks, of course, are all about kind of enforcing a, a kind of conformity, right? We all they all kind of make us the same. So maybe that was part of it. But I don't think that was a huge part. I think the thing, the real attraction, um, besides the growth, was Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And so I think he connected to Zuckerberg on a personal level. He's talked about Zuckerberg, you know, being, you know, Zuckerberg was introverted. He kind of was, you know, he kind of looked like what, you know, I think a lot of tech guys associate with being like an effective tech CEO. Um, but I think more importantly, um, Teal is somebody who really gravitates to these kind of intellectual rebels, right? And like, he, that's what he had been at Stanford. And he had, at, you know, at Stanford, you know, one of his closest friends was this guy, Keith Raboy, who, um, very successful venture capitalist now, got in trouble, basically got um, drummed out of uh, Palo Alto for um, standing in front of a faculty member's house 
um, uh, shouting uh, anti-gay slurs, saying, you hope you die of AIDS and, and, and using the slur over and over again. And um, of course, uh, really not cool on any, in any way. It's, it's, he was homophobic um, and, it's, and, and, and pretty hateful, especially given that, um, you know, given what was happening in the eighties with AIDS. Um, and so, so in any case, but Teal defended him to defend this guy, Keith Raboy, um, as, as a, basically as a free speech martyr says, you know, he's, this was a free speech stunt and, and the fact that people are protesting him, the fact that he's effectively been, you know, tossed, uh, you know, out of law school is, is a travesty and needs to be corrected. And I think, and they're, and they're, they're very close friends to this day, right? So, saw he saw Raboy as this really important intellectual rebel. I think, um, and he's 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 supported lots of people like that over the years. That's that's kind of a, his type is like is like somebody who's like um, uh, these like these 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 sort of um, feisty men who are super verbal and who are and who are of elite institutions, but have a have have some kind of way to stick it in the eye of the elite institutions. And I think we could see Zuckerberg in a, as that, right? So Zuckerberg is not. Um, a conservative, but Zuckerberg had gotten into trouble at Harvard for, you know, doing this kind of vaguely sexist, I mean, maybe not vaguely sexist, right? This like hot or not thing. Um, mm. And, and it kind of it's hacking and, um, and, and had, you know, run afoul of Harvard administrators. Um, and, and I think, you know, he was in a way like a, another one of these kind of um, young intellectual rebels. And, and I think that is who was going up against a big institution, in this case, Harvard. And I think that is a big part of the appeal um, to, uh, for somebody like, for, for Teal uh, about Zuckerberg. I, I think he was like another, another one of these um, crazy provocateurs, just a totally different kind of provocation. Yeah, we're not going to have time to delve into the Zuckerberg and Teal relationship, but I highly recommend when, when folks uh, end up, you know, buying the book to, to sort of take note of that, because that's something that, that I enjoyed a lot is, you know, as as you sort of write about um, the 2016 election and, um, you know, the, the Trump administration and Teal's role, you sort of see Zuckerberg in a lot of ways uh, deferring to Teal and sort of looking to emulate Teal. And I do think that relationship when you think about the Facebook's growth and um, their, you know, uh, movement in, in the political sphere, uh, was was pretty pretty influential. And as you said, it, it sounds like that was a big part of why Teal ended up um, investing in Facebook to begin with. So I want to pivot to Palantir, uh, Max, because even to this day, uh, you know, Palantir is a business that's shrouded in mystery. I'll admit, prior to reading your book, I. You know, I'd heard of Palantir, but had no idea what they actually do. I imagine for many people listening, they're in the same boat. Uh, what is what is Palantir all about? All right, so so Palantir it does data is a data mining software company. Figuring out who the bad guys are um, is is in some ways a data problem, and and so their main uh, customer is the U.S. government, um, and you know in particular the U.S. Defense Defense Department. They have a huge contract uh, with the DoD, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, to run this uh, database for the for the army, um, and and the and the the um, kind of where this came from is that P- PayPal had uh, PayPal had security issues because online payments tend to attract, uh, especially online payments companies that don't follow all compliance rules, as PayPal did not in its early years, tend to attract a bad sort. Right? They they attract people who are selling and buying Pez dispensers, but it's also like a pretty good way for like somebody to launder money. So inevitably they got some money launderers and they had to figure out what to do about it because money laundering 
you know, even if you're not, you know, even if you're a, a super libertarian and you, you're against all, you know, all regulation of, of financial transactions, money laundering is a business problem because it puts PayPal's banking relationships at at risk. Because if you're seen as laundering money, that can that can impede your ability to 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 also move money, and and you could get shut out of the financial system. So they had to deal with oh, and also money laundering. And people doing fraudulent stuff on PayPal uh, was costing PayPal money because if, if people are committing fraud, uh, buying something, but then not, um, you know, trying to buy something with PayPal, but then not having the funds to back it up, PayPal was on the hook for those uh, transactions. They had to stop it. And they, they came up with this, um, this approach, which was basically network analysis, because you look at the transactions and you look at who's connected to who and try to figure out who are the networks of money launderers because they're moving money within their networks. And that was successful at PayPal. It helped them get, um, get a handle on their, on their fraud problem. Um, and Teal basically came up with the idea after PayPal went, after PayPal was sold to eBay, it went public, then it was sold for 1.5 billion to basically take the same approach, network analysis, and sell it to the U.S. government. And if you remember, um, so post 9-11, this is like 2003, 2004, um, post 9-11, everyone is like really into the idea that we, as we, the American government and American law enforcement, were sort of missing signs, right? That these hijackers were taking um, flying lessons and, and like we're clearly up to something no good. And if we had just, you know, maybe if we had like, had a had a software program that went through everybody who's taking flight lessons and and you uh, cross reference that against people who are buying one way tickets or whatever somehow you would have found um, the 9/11 hijackers and effectively stopped 9/11 right and that was the that was the idea and and the government was super excited about this approach and Teal being a guy who's really good at selling into bubbles was like have I got an idea for you you just take this PayPal thing and you know m- you know tweak it a little and and we'll sell it to to the government and um, doesn't work super well uh, for many years, but managed to get uh, funding uh, from the CIA uh, through Incutel, which is like a CIA uh, venture backed venture capital firm. And that gets them in the door, gets them a few little contracts. They start developing the software. And, and you know, this, this takes, you know, many years basically till they have a good business. And really PayPal didn't start to, to really, uh, sorry, Palantir doesn't really start to succeed in any kind of meaningful way until you know Trump is elected, and and that's when they start getting these um, huge contracts, which I think are, are were partly the result of you know just developing the software, and also partly the result of having the right relationships. Of course, um, you know Palantir, you know insists that you know politics has nothing to do with their success, um, but the way the big government contracts work is you know it's it's always inherently uh, political, and it, it certainly couldn't have hurt to have access. Um, at the highest levels of government, uh, as they did, because Teal was a famous, famously, you know, a big Trump supporter. As you can say, if you're keeping score at home, um, you know, uh, we're sort of adding on to the pile of potential critiques of Peter Teal. And one of them is, uh, as Max just just mentioned, um, his company Palantir, uh, people would, would argue, potentially infringes on civil liberties, surveilling citizens, profiting right. off of wars. So there's, and these, these are, you know, not necessarily my beliefs, but um, some of the things levied against uh, Palantir. So- yeah, and and the thing about Palantir, so uh, data mining is not like inherently bad. It doesn't sound very bad, right? We just like you know, you just sort of look at the data, and you know, um, but of course, it can be used in ways that are that can like very quickly collapse um, any sense of privacy. Because so, just 
to, to give you sort of a, an analogy, Target knows who's pre- if you're pregnant or not based on your, your shopping history, right? You don't need it. They don't need to ask you like, are you pregnant? But they, they just look at it because you're buying diapers, you're buying formula or, or something like that. Uh, little onesies. Um, and the same thing applies in all different ways. Like, I mean, looking at your um, looking at your, like your, your sort of Facebook network, Facebook data, they probably can tell you, you know, um, what's your sexual orientation, whether you're cheating on your spouse, but you know, lots of stuff that I think like people, um, would consider to be private information and, and it can quickly become, um, could quickly be known. And so, so any kind of data mining is very sensitive and, and that that's one of, so that's one of the critiques that has been lodged against Palantir and Palantir is kind of given, um, uh, uh, has given that critique momentum by at times behaving not entirely, I would argue, not entirely ethically. Um, there have been a long, there's a long history of um, instances where the company kind of, I would say, pushed the envelope or, or uh, looked the other way as other people pushed the envelope. And that's, I, I don't think that's at, at all surprising given um, Peter Thiel's history and given his, basically his business philosophy is that it's good to push the envelope. It's good to um, sometimes break the rules. Sometimes rules are were created in this way of thinking because you know these you know sclerotic institutions like are trying to just like protect their own interests. Therefore, it's good for startups to 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 push them. Now, I think that becomes you know more problematic when we're talking about um, a big company that does business that you know has billions of dollars in contracts with the U S military. It's like, it's like one thing if a teeny startup is, you know, you know, maybe pushing the envelope on the rules or whatever, but once it's Palantir, this gigantic defense contractor, one of the biggest defense contractors now doing it, then it, it becomes a problem and kind of the same thing with Facebook. Right. I mean, I think Facebook, you know, Facebook has this long history of, of not totally respecting the pri- people's privacy. And I think, um, you know, that is probably was probably more acceptable when the company was tiny. Um, but, but once you're a trillion, once your market cap is a trillion dollars, once you have, you know, 3 billion users around the world, once this, you know, this company is, you know, moving, uh, you know, billions of dollars a quarter, then I think like the, the kind of view that, that we have no responsibility to, um, to, to, to institutions or to society or whatever becomes harder to, um, you know, whatever, it's harder to support. It's, I, you know, I, I start to get off, I get off the bus there. Yeah. I think, I think there is a remarkable irony between um, sort of the libertarian mindset of, of someone like Teal and, and the fact that his, you know, major company is, is criticized as being big, big brother. Uh, I want to ask one more investment question and, and then we'll, we'll turn more to, to Peter Teal as a person. So beyond investing in, we talked about uh, Facebook and Palantir and SpaceX, his uh, VC company, the Founders Fund, began funding research uh, that might allow him to live forever. Where do you think, having having met the man, where do you think Teal's interest in these technologies actually originated? Yeah, I mean, I think he hasn't. He's talked about this, and and it's and, and when you talk to people who are friends with him or have worked with him, like I mean, it's it's a it's a real thing. He's not, you know, most people, um, uh, uh, most children actually, you know, ha- learn of death and, and come to some kind of accommodation, but, uh, you know, understand like, Hey, yeah, it sucks that we die, but like, that's just kind of the way it is. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, and Teal has not, 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 not found that accommodation, um, and is as a result trying to, um, you know, fight against it. Um, uh, which, which of course, um, 
it could so so it, it could have I guess personal implications for him. Uh, you know, if he lived managed to live forever, and he has you know uh, I, he he fusses around with weird diets and things like that. I think he's a customer of um of the cryonics uh, the Alcor the the. Uh, the, I think it's a nonprofit, but the, the, it's like a organization that freezes your brain after you die, uh, so that conceivably you could be, you know, revived or whatever after after the fact. So it has has personal uh, uh, implications. But of course, this could be a big business too. Like, it, you know, if sure, if Teal were to cure death, that would be, you know, that would be pretty pretty wild. But I mean, if 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 one of these um, ventures just managed to like extend lifespan, even for just a specific disease for a couple of years, like, right, that would be a huge, um, that would be a huge breakthrough because like a lot of cancer drugs and stuff, like the amount of, um, extra time you get is not, I mean, it's not years, right? It could be a really great, um, investment, but I think it also comes from this like sort of personal, um, you know, whatever personal desire to live forever. And I talk about this in the book. I do think, um, it's sort of odd, uh, that he has this interest um, and that during, I, I suppose we're about to get into politics, but like during uh, the second half of the Trump administration as COVID hit and as, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, were dying, uh, that he was not moved to to, to break with Trump. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing Teal's candidates, uh, people, people who are running for, uh, they're, they're two key people who are running for Senate races with huge um, backing from Teal. One is J.D. Vance uh, in Ohio. And, you know, the other day, you know, J.D. Vance tweeted, you know, congratulations to all the all the workers, you know, uh, disobeying the vaccine mandates. And it's like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how encouraging people to not get vaccinated, you know, forwards your, you know, your, your interest in, in, um, in life extension. And I just feel like it's, there's, there's something, um, there's something getting either getting lost in translation translation, or it's just pure hypocrisy because I don't totally understand how somebody who's interested in, um, in, in dealing with death, isn't, isn't spending more time thinking about the ways in which people are dying, like every single day, huge numbers of people still are dying every single day. I mean, his, his, his grievance with death, though, does, does again, fold more into the contrarian um, characterization because you remember, you know, we told the story of him uh, uh, responding to the police officer and saying, I'm not sure if the concept of a speed limit makes sense. Right. Uh, you know, maybe if you ask him, he might say, I'm not sure if the concept of death makes sense. I mean, he's, he's someone, it sounds like, who's, who's, you know, who will look for a way to push Absolutely. back and disrupt these systems. Um, as much as possible. Totally. And I, I guess like if somebody is going to cure death, right. I mean, you're going to have to take this point of view. So like, maybe we'll all be grateful to Peter Thiel, like, you know, hundred, you know, 30 years from now or hundred years from now, we can, we can toast him, um, on our, you know, 150th birthdays or whatever, uh, at, you know, for, for having the, having the being, being willing to think differently. And I think you're absolutely right. Like this, it's just another case in which he's, um, yeah, characterologically, you know, whatever, approaching things from a different point of view. So let's talk about politics. Uh, what was most interesting to me about your book not was not so much about Peter Thiel, was, was more that you wrote a lot about the, the political culture of Silicon Valley and how Thiel would attract conservatives to his hedge fund and to his VC company. And to those listening who, you know, might be from the East Coast, might be international, Silicon Valley is often considered to be, you know, so progressive and, and this liberal environment. But you, at various points, Max, you characterized it as, as being quite conservative. So what was going on there? Yeah, well, I think, so this is, yeah, this is this is definitely a 
big part of what I was trying to do with the book. I mean, I, I, the book is about Teal, but I think it's also, you know, kind of an alternative history of Silicon Valley. And and the the kind of conventional wisdom on, on the tech industry is that it's this it's this vector, it's this countercultural movement. It's basically an extension of um, the 1960s. Um, you know, these basically these radicals. Uh, you know, instead of whatever protesting, they created these technologies that that allow us to, um, you know, free ourselves or become, um, you know, better versions of ourselves or whatever. And I think like the best, you know, example of this is, is Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs is somebody who um, had, um, you know, was a proud, basically, you know, hippie. I mean, he's somebody who, you know, dropped out of Reed College. He was, um <clears throat> You know, he he didn't wear deodorant. He was a fruititarian, and and he talked about um, Apple and and technology in terms that were like very much in line with kind of like the way that the counterculture talked about stuff. So so Apple becomes basically like the next latest greatest thing in the human potential movement. Like you could as a way to you know you could do yoga or you could like get an iPhone, and and both of those things will kind of broaden your mind and, and cause you to um, be a better, you know, you know, whatever, better person. And I think, first of all, I think there's a lot of truth to that story. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is not to say that like that whole story is totally wrong, but I also think like, as I say it right out loud, it kind of is stupid. I mean, I don't think the iPhone, the idea of the iPhone as like a, you know, a, as an extension of the countercultural movement is kind of funny when you think about that, that there's this other, um, uh, thread that's run through Silicon Valley. And I think that's the thread that Peter Thiel is a part of, which is that, you know, Silicon Valley, in addition to being kind of an outgrowth of, of the 1960s, is like a literal uh, outgrowth of the U.S. government. And, and, and you know, these companies, not Apple, but, but, the, but the precursors, HP, Intel, um, the, the companies that really built Silicon Valley were, um, were doing so thanks to, you know, massive government contracts um, from, from the U.S. military because we were trying to win the Cold War. And, um, and I think a lot of those, you know, of course, those people were not um, super liberal, and they, they, you know, they weren't protesting the Vietnam War, they were part of the, the military industrial complex. And I think Teal has very cleverly, um, you know, tapped into that. And you could see like Palantir as being in some sense, like a continuation of that, of that era. Right. I also think, um, you know, when you peel back there, like jobs, even jobs, right, was he was not a he was not a liberal. He was kind of a libertarian, and and there's always been this kind of ultra libertarian thread that's running through Silicon Valley that we sort of we thought you know which says essentially that um, that technology is going to set us free, and that people should uh, businesses in particular should be able to do whatever they want, and especially businesses that are that are 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 doing technology that is clearly making our lives better should be given you know a lot of leeway, and I think that's something that 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 even a lot of these uh, kind of lefties are, you know, they, they buy into that. And that's a big part of like the sort of Peter Thiel ideology because people, people sort of think about Thiel, you know, Trump, the fact that he supported Trump um, is interesting for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, and it's really important. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second, but um, I think the most important part of Thiel's ideology is not like a right wing or left. It's not, a, it's not, it's not like on the right or left spectrum. It's basically just, that tech companies, in particular, the founders of tech companies, um, 
should are really important to the world and should be able to get away with anything, should be able to do whatever they want, and that our world would be better if we just gave them maximal leeway. So it's like it's like libertarianism for a very specific class of individual, which is, I think you can see why that's a that's that's attractive to other tech founders. You can see why it might be. Um, a useful ideology that would help you if you're somebody like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but you can also see why it might be kind of dangerous, especially as we get these tech guys um, who have you know more power than God. Yeah. And you mentioned his support of, of uh, Trump. I, I actually went back and I watched um, after reading your book, his speech at the national convention in Cleveland in 2016. And you noted in the book, this was a time where the mainstream business community stayed away from Trump. Not a single CEO from one of America's uh, 100 largest companies gave to his campaign. Silicon Valley was, was averse to him. Um, and somehow Peter Thiel still ended up not just giving money to the campaign, Max, but publicly declaring, you know, putting his name behind him, being a keynote speaker at the convention. What was going through his mind when he actually issued the showing of public support? So, I mean, I think well, two things. So I think like, number one, like Teal likes Trump. And, and like, I know that's like very hard for like people in Silicon Valley to swallow because like, he seems like a really smart, normal guy and he's interested in the future and he's an immigrant and he's gay. And, and Trump is, you know, ran as a reactionary. He's from a political party that's super hostile to immigrants and gays. Um, and so it just seems like totally off base. Why would somebody like Peter Teal uh, support somebody like Donald Trump? But I think, I think he like likes aspects of, of Trump and Trumpism, um, in particular, uh, and probably most importantly, the, the kind of like um, w- what I would call like white identity politics of Trumpism or what Peter Thiel would probably call um, Trump's uh, uh, opposition to political correctness. Like the, that the, the, the fact that Trump thinks it's really important to be able to say things that are like borderline racist or sexist. And the fact that it's not, that we're not allowed to say those things says something really bad about our society, right? Like that's a big part of the, of like Trump's, I think, appeal and his pitch is that he's just going to be the guy who just like tells you like it is. And that of course is a big part of like Teal's worldview. Teal agrees that, that quote unquote political correctness is like one of the most important problems. Um, That said, I also think that Teal is an amazing strategist and he correctly perceived that, um, first of all, that Trump might win and that Trump's candidacy was undervalued, that there, that his given his chances of winning, which were like, you know, 40 percent or something at the time, pretty much everybody in elite circles would have was like whether they on some level. Right. Uh, it's like it's like they didn't even if they even if they said that they thought Trump could win, they didn't really believe it. Right. And that's part of the reason why. Yeah, I would argue that he had so little support from um, the mainstream business world. So Teal realized that like he could bring something valuable to Trump and it was exceedingly valuable. So like when you go back that the Republican National Convention, he got that slot because, uh, you know, as as people who were involved in the Trump campaign told me, you know, they had they did have some business people, but like the business people they had were not exactly like the most like they weren't exactly like the the like most, um, you know, proper business people, right? It's a lot of like real estate guys. If you remember, you think back to the um, RNC from that that era, it was like a bunch of reality stars. Like the, the business guys were like involved in the real estate industry. A lot of them are, have been indicted since, mm-hmm. um, you know, like Dana White, who's like the founder of UFC was there. So like, that's a big business, but it's a cage fighting business, right? So it's like, not exactly like the same as like being like a, a venture capitalist, being Peter Thiel. So when, when so Thiel's support there, I think was very valuable, both in terms of like um, sending a signal to moderates and, you know, even some Democrats, you know, Trump got some Democratic votes, 
um, that like, you know, a normal business person, you know, thinks that this guy's okay and, and can, and can see his way to voting for him. I also think that speech, um, uh, this kind of was like, despite himself, but, but Teal's speech, I think was pretty important. You know, he, he, his speech, um, during his speech, you know, he does his usual thing about how the U S is going down the toilet and Trump is going to save him. But, but he, then he also said, you know, he, he said, I'm, um, I'm proud to be gay and I'm proud to be American and I'm proud to vote for Donald Trump. And it's like kind of a small thing, but, um, but that was like the first time that had happened at the Republican, at a Republican convention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last time there had been a gay speaker, an openly gay speaker, you know, the Texas delegation had taken their hats off to pray. Like, and, and that's not what happened this time. Everyone got up and cheered. And it was this moment of weird, right, for, for a, a political party and a, particularly a candidacy that's like completely kind of almost predicated on, on you know, on, on exclusion and stuff. But, but like, it was this moment of, of inclusiveness um, in, in, in a weird way. And I think that also probably helped Trump to some extent. Um, the, the, the last thing I'll say is, so Teal never don't, did not, had not donated to Trump at that moment. He donated in October, um, just after Trump, uh, the, the comments that Trump made on Access Hollywood had leaked to the press, the, the grab him by the pussy comments, which um, of course, at the time, every Republican, um, you know, well, everyone, but 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 including many Republicans were backing away from Trump, condemning him, saying, you know, this is you know, it's a bridge too far. Um, you know, we don't want a candidate who's going to seem to endorse uh, sexual assault. Right. And Teal, um, right after that, makes a donation, one point two five million uh, to a PAC and to a to a Mercer affiliated PAC. You know, that's that's kind of connected to Bannon. So he gets in with Bannon. Um, but, um, and also gives a speech where he attempts, and, and I think to some extent successfully defends Trump and he defends him on the grounds that like Trump is just kind of a big goof, but we need to take him seriously because he's saying sort of smart things. So don't pay attention to the, you know, you, you can be against his comments, but before him. And, and so Teal was sort of trying to create kind of a, you know, a, a permission structure for other um, CEOs and billionaires to to find their way to to supporting Trump, and and I think we see that you know play out um, both in the kind of weeks that followed just before the election where Trump's campaign turned around, not only because of Peter Thiel, but it it, it certainly couldn't have hurt. Um, and then afterwards, when a bunch of CEOs were uh, so all of a sudden um, willing to see it the way Peter saw it, and and seeing it as you know, tr- this, this kind of formulation where we, we don't take Trump literally, we take him seriously. And so you saw, you know, these, these meetings that Teal, um, that Teal uh, organized where you had, you know, CEOs of the biggest and most successful companies um, going to meet with Trump in this kind of show of uh, not exactly solidarity, but a kind of a willingness to work together. So I think he really helped bring, you know, whatever elite opinion for whatever that's worth around to Trump. Yeah. I, I, I think that's part of the reason why, um, you know, Peter Thiel is such a polarizing figure. And, and one of the major uh, criticisms of him is his, his you know, um, support, impl- implicit or explicit, of, of uh, former President Trump um, could have been seen as an endorsement of, of some of the problematic policies that we alluded to. Uh, but I do want to want to sort of flesh out a couple of the other major criticisms that have been lodged against Peter Thiel. And, and one of them, and this is something you devote a lot of space to in the book as well, is, is his, uh, his longstanding feud with the Gawker Media Company. So a lot of people are familiar with it, but for, for folks who are not, what exactly happened between Peter Thiel and Gawker? Well, this was like happened. Um, I mean, it, it all came out almost at the exact same time that he he uh, 
he became a Trump supporter. Mm. But anyway, eight years earlier, uh, Gawker Media, which is this, which was this um, uh, blog publisher, they did a lot of really good journalism, but also a lot of stuff that was like just gossipy and like super tawdry and probably, and in retrospect, um, you know, not consistent with like the values of, of journalism. And so uh, Gawker publishes this blog post that says, Peter Thiel is totally gay people. And it's this kind of brainy essay meditation on the nature of the closet. At, at least that's how it's framed. But what it really was, of course, is just basically an outing. I mean, it's a Thiel at the time was out uh, in private. People in his uh, people who worked for him knew people, his friends knew uh, uh, his boyfriend came to the Christmas party and whatever. But but he wasn't publicly out, mm. and um, he perceived this as a gross violation of his privacy. And um, and then over the next you know eight years or so, uh, nurtured this grudge, and the grudge grew um, because in addition to outing him, in addition to um, to exposing him in a way that I think most people, um, you know, most people I think would agree with Teal that it was a violation of his privacy. Uh, Gawker continued to cover him very aggressively, not and not necessarily in a, in a gossipy way, more more like covering the failings of his hedge fund and and sort of just just critic covering him critically. And also covering his friends uh, relatively aggressively. So the grudge grows. Uh, as I, I this is a long story, and I I go into a bunch of details in the book. But he basically um, uh, is looking for any kind of way to kind of deal with this problem. And initially, there's a, attempts to at kind of courtship, trying to like you know make nice with Gawker. Um, there uh, he does all kinds of stuff that I think. Um, you know, most people would consider a little bit underhanded or kind of pushing the limits of, of what's sort of acceptable private investigators and that sort of thing. But anyway, eventually he lands on this uh, litigation, which is that Hulk Hogan was suing Gawker, had a really good case because Gawker had published a sex tape involving Hulk Hogan. Mm -hmm. And Teal finds a way to cover Hogan's legal bills, Terry Bollea's legal bills, um, secretly. And uh, this case proceeds and ultimately um ends with a $140 million uh, jury verdict in Florida where, where Hulk Hogan was from. So this is like a friendly jury and Gawker goes out of business. The publisher of Gawker, uh, Nick Denton is personally bankrupt. And Teal uh, at that point was, uh, it basically was exposed as, as the backer of the lawsuit. And he comes out and says, yes, I was the backer and I'm proud of it. And it's the, it's the proudest, um, philanthropic thing I've done in, in, you know, in my life. It's, it's my greatest act of philanthropy. And I think that is, so there are different places you can criticize. Um, I think for me, uh, you can, there's a, you know, smart people can kind of like disagree about whether or not Gawker should be, should continue to exist or something like that. But um, based on 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 publishing, you know, a bunch of really gossipy, you know, stuff that 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 feels like in many ways a violation of of people's privacy. But um, but I think the the sort of the sharper criticism, to my mind, is the is the the aspect of a billionaire secretly um, financing the litigation that destroys an American media company, and that and that's important to me as a journalist because um, it's not just that because Gawker it, it, Gawker is not the only uh, not the only group of journalists who suffered, right? A bunch of journalists lost their jobs. A bunch of journalists, in fact, who had nothing to do with public writing that post about Peter Thiel because that had happened many years earlier. 
But nowadays, right, if anybody wants to write about Peter Thiel, including me, you have to think about this Gawker case, right? And what does it say? It, it, what it says is that Peter Thiel is the kind of guy who, if you know, he doesn't like what you're writing, could potentially, you know, engage in a multi-year campaign to um, to take away your your financial livelihood. Um, and um, and that's um, something that even if the threat is very remote, of course, has an effect on how people, um, how journalists think, how um, editors think, and of course, how sources think, right? Because it's because it affects the sources as well. Because if they're, if, if somebody's tempted to be a whistleblower, you know, and, and then you have to think about, well, wait a minute, like, what is going to be the implication of this or of me talking to a journalist? Um, and, and people keep, you know, since the book's been published, people keep asking me, like, are you afraid of Peter Thiel? I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, I want to say two things. I mean, one is Teal didn't cooperate for the book. He didn't talk to me on the record. Uh, I sent him a big list of fact-checking questions or, or shared a big list of fact-checking questions before the book was published, uh, which he did not respond to. Um, but there's a big difference between that and, and actively trying to get in the way of my journalism. And he never did that. I was not threatened um, by anyone, uh, anyone connected to Teal or, you know, or subject to any kind of, you know, overt or covert intimidation throughout this process. Um, and, and so to that, that's to his credit, I would say. Um, but I do think that, um, that the litigation creates, uh, create, you know, changes things and, and, and makes it much harder for anyone to write about him. And, and like I said, so when people ask me, like, are you afraid of Peter Thiel? I say, yes, but I'm not any more afraid of Peter Thiel than I am of any billionaire, because mm -hmm. there's really no reason why another person couldn't take this exact playbook and use it and use it in, in exactly the same way. And Thiel has helped them there. He's, he's created a playbook and he's created a permission structure. And I think that was part of the, the plan all along is to, is to, is to, you know, whatever, send a message that certain kinds of journalism. Now, now this is a kind of journalism, arguably, that is very far removed from the kind of journalism that I practice or that any other mainstream journalist practices. Like I'm not publishing sex tapes. But again, in the minds of a, of a source or an editor or a newsroom lawyer, right, it's not that there's not necessarily, you know, it can have an impact even on, 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 um, on quote unquote mainstream journalism, and I think that it has had a chilling effect on on our our media and and as and has eroded um, the First Amendment, and that's something that if you, for a libertarian is is a little bit troubling. Um, as somebody who really believes in the First Amendment and the you know the importance of uh, media to, to to exist and to continue to hold hold powerful people to account. You know, and and this whole the you know this whole critique, Max. It sort of uh, illustrates Teal as a man who will never forgive a slight, and and it you know lends comparisons to not just Bezos but also to how Trump is is depicted in the media. And you, you recall in the beginning of the conversation, one of his former bullies said, you know, he might have a list out there of, of people he's going to kill. It you know it might not be that far fetched that maybe he doesn't have a list of people he wants to kill, but um, maybe he has internally or externally. Uh, a, a list or, or just any sort of conceptualization of people who have slighted him. And, and you know, and uh, that sort of vengeance fuels some of his endeavors. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think everybody has, you know, everybody to some extent is, you know, is aware of, of the ways in which we've been slighted. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I definitely think that um, Teal has shown, yeah, a willingness, not just to, to, to harbor the grudge, but, but of course to, to act on the grudge. And, um, and, you know, when, again, when you're talking about people, like, like, I think I, part of the reason I wrote this book, you know, and why I think it's important is that, like, I think 
a lot of this stuff is very interesting and it's like, and, and I think you can, you can have a great deal of admiration for Peter Thiel and learn from him and, and kind of use aspects of his thinking and, and, you know, you know, whatever it's, it's probably useful in business and maybe even in life. Um, but also when we're talking about um, people who have the kind of power that Peter Thiel has now, um, then, you know, I think it, we have to scrutinize those those beliefs a little bit more. And, and I think it's, it's again, like, you know, being willing to like take vengeance against people who have wronged you is, is kind of a, a classic, you know, well, that's pretty normal, but, but of course, Peter Thiel has, you know, has a lot more power than any normal person almost has ever had, you know, as, as somebody who's worth billions of dollars and who has access um, and influence over um, these tech executives who run companies that are, you know, bigger and more powerful um, than than pretty much any entity in, in in human history. So he's got a lot of power. So so those you know those those tendencies are are I think more troubling than they otherwise would be. Yeah, and, and one of the other uh, things that I think your book got across is you know Peter Thiel in many ways seems inscrutable. Like he like he's he's as we we've, we've alluded to, he's not someone who speaks about his personal life. He you know wasn't open about his relationships or his sexuality. And in the book, you talk about how he's, he's very reason-driven. He's not influenced by emotion. You mentioned that his mansion in San Francisco didn't have any keepsakes, magazines, or family photos, and his home kind of looked like a stage set. And it's, it's hard to tell that someone actually lived, lived there. So if you want, there's one thing that you want people to sort of, uh, you know, glean from the book about Peter Thiel, the man, you know, as opposed to Peter Thiel, the entrepreneur, Peter Thiel, the, the you know, businessman, what, what exactly would that be? I mean, I, I, to me, like what's most interesting are the ways in which are, are the are the the ideas and are the 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 things that he's done in his life. I mean, I think obviously Peter Thiel, the man is really interesting and he and but he, and he helps us and, and understanding him helps us understand how why these companies are built, you know, what they believe um, and, and, and kind of like what to what extent are they willing to kind of like. Um, push the bounds of of decency, and I think you know when you um, you know studying Teal closely and talking to his um, you know many of his friends and colleagues and classmates and people who've been close to him for many years, um, you know the the implication is pretty far. They're willing to go pretty far, and I think that's um, that's you know interesting, and it is I think a little bit scary, um, and also maybe in some kind of way, you know, worthy of respect, um, or at least worthy of kind of study. And, 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 and so, so I think, um, but I think, yeah, I think he's, I think like, like there's this kind of like, you know, overarching question that you sometimes that I've, I've heard when people talk about Teal, which is like, yeah, but he doesn't really believe all that stuff. Right. And it's like, no, he really does. And, and like, and yeah. So, so that's, I guess that's my big takeaway. Awesome. 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 And to all those listening, uh, you can purchase the contrarian Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's pursuit of power um, anywhere books are sold as well as online. Um, I don't know, uh, Max, if you want to direct people to a particular place to buy their books. I know. No, you can buy wherever uh, it's on. Uh, it's on the internet. It's on Amazon. It's on. It's on Walmart, and and you can buy it from an independent bookstore as well. Um, and uh, feel free to people can feel free to also hit me up on Twitter. Uh, uh, my 
uh, name is Chaff at Chafkin, C-H-A-F-K-I-N. And if you have questions and stuff or want to talk about the book, uh, I'm around. Yeah. And I said this to you before we hit record, but uh, I'll, I'll say this to listeners, definitely uh, worth the read. I mean, what, what, what Max does really well is he doesn't just tell a story about Peter Thiel's life. He tells a story of sort of what's, what happened in the backdrop, right? Like not, and, and we didn't get to talk about all this because, you know, there's, there's just so much substance, but like how Peter Thiel barely missed a flight uh, around 9-11 that might've changed the course of his life. And um, so Sort of what his experience was like around the the round table and the executive committee during the Trump administration. So I know we talked about a lot, but there's there's a lot more we didn't get to. Definitely uh, implore folks to, to check out the book. Um, Thanks, Ricky. Max, yeah, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me. I had a blast. Yeah, same here. It was really fun. Thank you. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Max Chafkin. Uh, Max and I covered so much ground talking through uh, Peter Thiel's upbringing and his entrepreneurial endeavors and his um, you know political leanings. But there were a number of things which we didn't have time to get to, um, some anecdotes and a couple of, of very interesting uh, vignettes from the book that I wanted to share with all of you now. Um, so I guess the first thing to mention in regards to his childhood, you know, Peter Thiel never hid the fact that he was intelligent. When I was a kid, um, and, and when Peter Thiel was a kid as well, and, and Max, and I'm sure everyone listening, uh, being intelligent wasn't really cool, right? You would get bullied, you'd get picked on, you'd get made fun of if you were smart, Um And that's something that I think has changed now. I think nowadays probably being intelligent as a child is seen as more attractive, right? But but it certainly wasn't always that way. And 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 it's it's interesting to note that Peter Thiel never disguised the fact that he was the smartest guy in the room. He he sort of embraced it. Um, He volunteered in high school to take the SAT uh, for his classmates. He charged them five hundred dollars per test. Uh, And in addition to this illustrating how he embraced his intelligence, it also foreshadowed what he would do in his career, you know, using his intelligence for profit with disregard for norms. So I found that to be pretty interesting. He was also the victim of, of a lot of pranks in addition to bullying. There was one anecdote that stood out from the book, uh, which, which was interesting. I think this might have been in college, um, but they one of his roommates printed a sign and taped it onto the ceiling, and the sign said, under this spot, Peter Thiel said the word, fuck for the first time and the sign stayed there for the rest of the semester um and his his you know hallmates in in college would would sort of laugh about it uh every time teal walked by but he didn't know about it and he was never told about it until the very last day of of the year when one of his roommates kind of told him um what was going on that hey you know we created this sign um uh commemorating the first time you said fuck and he just was completely, completely indifferent about it. <laughs> so uh, that that was one one um, uh, you know one experience that Max wrote about where Peter Thiel was was the victim of, of a prank. There was also another another time where his classmates hatched a plan to trick him into getting drunk by challenging him to a made up game called beer chess. Um, and the idea was he had to chug every time he lost a piece, um, but. It was really, you know, to try to try to get this guy intoxicated, and because Peter was the superior chess player, um, he, you know, he ended up easily winning the game. So it almost it almost backfired on um, on you know his his classmates in that instance. Um, but uh, he was uh, he was something of a social outcast, and, and Max and I alluded to this in our conversation. He was something of an outcast um, in high school and, and in college at Stanford as well. Max wrote that you know his, a lot of his classmates drank and smoked pot and hooked up, and not only did Peter not engage in those things, 
but he sort of looked down on, on people that did. Max wrote about how every morning, you know, on like a Saturday after people would, would, uh, would be hungover, uh, Peter would walk to the water fountain every morning and, and take his vitamins one at a time, almost as like a showing of, of superiority uh, to his hungover peers. So I, I, I mentioned all those things because I thought that uh, a lot of them, and I mentioned this on, on, on the episode, I, I, I always find it interesting to trace back, um, look, looking at entrepreneurs and innovators and, and tracing back some of their childhood experiences and trying to see if, if you can draw that line. And I think in the case of, uh, of Peter Thiel, you certainly can um, in, in his rebelliousness, in his nonconformity, in you know, his, his, uh, his fuck the world uh, mentality, his, his disruptive nature, his desire to be different. And you contrast that with with some of his rivals. We talked about um, Elon Musk, and uh, Max talked about how um, Elon Musk is uh, sort of goofy and 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 uh, a little bit uh, combative, um, but has trouble censoring himself. And we see that on Twitter all the time. Whereas Teal is is closed off and and he's he's secretive. And I think that 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 sort of um, you know it, both both of them are wildly successful, you know, maybe the two most successful businessmen in Silicon Valley, but could not be more different in that respect. Um, and we, of course, profiled Elon Musk on an episode earlier this year, if you haven't listened to it, with Eric Berger um, on the, the beginnings of SpaceX. So I think, you know, listening to that one and listening to this one, you can sort of draw those those contrasts. It's also interesting, and, and I didn't mention this to, to Max, but before PayPal, there was X.com. That was Elon Musk's um, uh, finance company. And recently, Elon Musk actually reacquired the domain for X.com. So if you go, if you type right now www.x.com into your browser, you'll see it just has an X on the top left, and that's it. Um, so people are like speculating like what plans Elon has for, for that website. Um, and it is it is interesting x.com it does seem like a valuable uh piece of of internet real estate um it's funny i i can't remember if i read this in max's book or in one of the elon books but when elon musk started x.com um the company was was criticized the name of the company was criticized because people thought it was like a porn company um <laughs> like like an x-rated porn company instead of uh an online payment system right so and i also wonder uh, so the initial name for PayPal was Confinity. I wonder what Confinity means. I didn't get around to asking Max this, but Confinity, because he, because uh, uh, Peter Thiel has a tendency to name his um, companies after Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Confinity means community of limits, contiguity adjacency. Um, I don't know what that means. So he named his company Confinity. Uh, community of limits, um, and then it later became uh, PayPal. And the other thing uh, to mention in regards to Musk and Teal is, you know, they they really their their enmity, their dislike for each other was pretty pretty uh, apparent. Um, in the book, Max talks about how he interviewed one person who spoke to both of them about the other one, and this person said Musk thinks Peter is a sociopath. And Peter thinks Musk is a fraud and a braggart. <laughs> so I found that to be pretty interesting, like how each man um, sort of, you know, looks looks at the other one. 
Um, there was another anecdote for the book, which was quite interesting, uh, where Max actually talks about how Elon Musk and Peter Thiel were driving to a meeting with Mike Moritz at Sequoia. He's, he's uh, one of the venture capitalists, one of the investors that I think Max mentioned in the episode. And Elon was attempting to show off the car's acceleration. He crashed the car into an embankment um, and uh, it was completely totaled. And Elon actually <clears throat> actually mentioned as he walked away from the crash that he didn't buy any insurance um, because he never thought something like that would happen to him. So, so, so you sort of see the difference in the two men there, how uh, Peter is more risk averse and Elon Musk is someone who's who's more, you know, who lives on the edge a little bit and, and, and you know, was more willing to, uh, to take those risks. You know, in terms of early influences on, uh, on Peter Thiel, something we didn't talk about, and the book didn't mention this all that much, but uh, Peter Thiel was influenced by a man named Rene Girard. And, and if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll remember that I had on an author, Luke Burgess, earlier this year to talk about Girard and mimesis. Remember, that's the idea that people are motivated at their core by a desire to imitate one another. And I actually think Luke mentioned in that episode that uh, one of the key disciples to uh, mimetic theory was Peter Thiel. Um, and so Gerard w- was, was a major influence um, of, of, uh, of Thiel's. And in terms of his other major motivations, we spoke a lot about his interest in um, curing the aging process. He's invested in organizations uh, created by Aubrey de Grey, who I've mentioned in the podcast before, one of the leaders in the field that believes that uh, aging could be reversed, um, Hal Molecular, the Singularity Institute. So this has, has been uh, a focal point of his financial investments as well as um, personally something that's that's driven him um, – you know, and and I feel like that's that's common in a lot of the you know the billionaire entrepreneurs, sort of you know find, finding a way to either prolong their lives or reverse the aging process. Um, and then, in terms of Thiel's politics, um, you know, I, and this, and I mentioned, I think this is one of the reasons why he's so polarizing in Silicon Valley and in in the world. Really, is you know his, his ideologies. When he was younger, he actually joked about starting a fake charity, Liberals for Peace, that would raise money based on a vague agenda of lefty causes and then do absolutely nothing with the money except pay himself. That reminds me of uh, – I think George Costanza had a bit on that, right? He would um, give it to the People's Fund. No, it was uh, it was the Human Fund. He, he created the Human Fund, uh, a, a fake charity. So um, Peter Thiel must have – inspired that or, or, or something along those lines. Um, and then, you know, we, we talked a lot about how he he supported Trump because it was pragmatic, right? He, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw that Trump would win, which meant easier access to contracts for Palantir. And um, it would also give Facebook a way to get close to the White House. But in the book, Max actually suggested there is another reason why he supported Trump. Um, and it might have been uh, and this is according to one person who uh, who worked at Thiel's firms. It might have been because he wanted to watch Rome burn. And I think that that, you know, in a nutshell, sort of <laughs> encompasses a lot of Peter Thiel's um, motivation. And, and again, you can draw the line back to his, his childhood. He wanted to watch Rome burn. He wanted to get vengeance and, and um, comeuppance on, on the people that doubted him, on the people that slighted him, on the people that, you know, uh, that made fun of him. So I think, I think that sort of explains. I think his his um, a lot of his support of Trump, but uh, you know his his his, his 
comfort with Trump and his proximity to Bannon, we mentioned, did end up putting a wedge in a lot of his relationships and driving some of his friends away. Um, a few of his confidants, Max writes in the book, stopped speaking to him, and others just sort of avoided talking <laughs> politics around him. Um, so it's safe to say there was a ton of, of, of backlash against um, against Teal when he when he supported Trump. There was also backlash against Palantir, and we didn't we didn't get to talk about this, but um, Palantir, as uh, Max mentioned, is uh, a, a company that mines that helps the government mine data, um, potentially violating the privacy rights of of ordinary Americans. So there were concerns um, from the ACLU uh, that. The company would be sifting through millions of people's innocent communications and activities. The Guardian actually published a piece warning of a sinister cyber surveillance scheme. Um, there was a, a profile on Forbes with the uh, founder uh, on, on the cover, and it said, Meet Big Brother. Um, and that was that was part of the criticism of Palantir. And then it would later come out, and I wasn't even aware of this until reading Max's book, that Palantir was linked to the Cambridge Analytica scandal that we all heard so much about um, surrounding the, the Trump election. And it's interesting to note that Thiel's protege, Mark Zuckerberg, never really punished him uh, for his role in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, and some people think that part of the reason why is Zuckerberg – Kept him around, kept Teal around to prevent conservative ire, ire. Right, he was one of the token conservatives in the group. But it is it is interesting to think about how uh, how Peter Teal and how Palantir played a role in in that controversy. And the book also contains a rumor that uh, Palantir may have played a role in killing Bin Laden in 2011. Now, Max acknowledges that the rumor might have been started by Palantir employees, so it may or may not be true. Um, but, uh, essentially in the book, The Finish, which was a, an account of the hunt for bin Laden, um, the journalist Mark Bowden credited two technological breakthroughs, um, which allowed, um, the, uh, CIA analysts to find, um, bin Laden. One of them was the development of the predator drone, allowing them to, um, to circle over a town area. And the second, um, was a system that worked in concert with the drones to create a record of a potential target's movement and contacts. Um, that was the total information awareness, the TIA program, and that might have been um, helped along by Palantir. So, you know, no one really knows, or I, I guess I guess maybe Palantir knows, but you know, if that's true, uh, certainly would be a, a you know serious serious victory for um, for Palantir. And we spoke about how um, Teal is going to be involved in politics, not just now, but for years to come. Uh, Max mentioned he's supporting the candidacy of two senators uh, running next year. He also helped to bankroll the campaigns for Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And you know, and this this further adds to his controversial, polarizing nature. Putting it putting it nicely, um, because he's supporting. You know, he supported two men who. Um, epitomize sort of the, some of the the problems with the far right uh, and the Republican Party, especially in the case of Josh Hawley, um, him having explicitly uh, supported the actions of uh, the failed insurrection on January 6th. And actually on that note, uh, Max in the book, uh, he writes at one point that Teal may have planted many of the seeds that led to the failed insurrection on January 6th. And I think that indirectly, you know, a case can be made that um, he'd set in motion those events, right? Like 
by um, making uh, the theft of user data by Cambridge Analytica possible in 2014 and facilitating Facebook's complicity in the pro-Trump misinformation campaign in 2016. Um, you know, he was uh, helping to misinform Right, uh, many of the people who participated in the failed and insurrection, as well as giving millions of dollars to the Trump presidency and speaking on his behalf in um, in uh, at the RNC. So, I think you know, I, I think if you're left with anything after reading the book and after listening to this episode, it's that you know Peter Thiel is, is a is, is a morally gray person. I mean, I mean, we talked about some of the criticisms of him. Um, he's some people think that he's greedy. Right after PayPal. Um, was sold. He stepped down to work on his hedge fund. Um, he believed that eBay, the company to which he'd sold PayPal, was overvalued, and so he wanted to bet against his new colleagues to optimize for his, his hedge fund. Um, but a lot of people in Silicon Valley sort of looked at that as as, as greed. Something else that uh, that um, Teal did is he used the proceeds from his Roth IRA to purchase shares for PayPal. And for folks who are not versed in tax law, I'm, I'm certainly not, um, this meant that his profits would be tax-free. And he actually used the same Roth IRA funds to buy stocks in Facebook and in Palantir. So you have potentially millions of dollars in profits, maybe maybe even hundreds of, billion, uh, hundreds of millions in profits that he doesn't owe taxes on because he used – um, his Roth IRA funds, which um, is something of, of, a, of a loophole in the tax law, but is, is definitely ethically, uh, you know, ethically dubious, ethically questionable. And and we mentioned his uh, his gripes with um, with Gawker, right, taking down a media company. Um, it did create sort of a roadmap for how someone can defy social norms and conventions and violate laws in order to basically to, to, to mass a profit. And this was uh, a roadmap that other entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley would would follow, including uh, Zuckerberg with Facebook and uh, Travis uh, Kalanick with Uber. And with Uber, actually, and Max mentions this in the book, um, Uber in particular, you know, uh, sort of adopted that Thielian mindset, violating municipal statutes and underpaying drivers and ignoring safety stand- standards. Um you saw that with Uber. You saw that with Juul, uh, the e-cigarette company that um, Max writes shamelessly markets to children. Robinhood, which tempts investors with questionable financial project uh, products. So all of these companies are really taking the the template that that Teal built and running with it. So something else I enjoyed a lot was they uh, Max wrote about some of um, some of. Peter Thiel's hiring practices at PayPal. And I don't know, longtime listeners of the pod will remember I did a bonus episode with Jeremy Pactor and we talked about, um, you know, can you get hired at Google? And here are the brain teasers that they ask you. And some of those were, um, were you know, formulated by Peter Thiel. So Max writes that he would uh, ask potential job candidates, um, you know, he'd say, you have a round table and a limitless supply of quarters. You and a competitor take turns placing a quarter on the table, and the quarters cannot overlap. The last person to place a quarter without knocking any coins off is the winner. Do you go first, or do you go second? So you can think about that for a moment. <laughs> Picture yourself sitting sitting opposite um, Peter Thiel, uh, the billionaire investor, 
and he asks you that question, how would you respond? The solution is um, you go first and you place the coin at the center of the table and just mirror what the competitor does. And if you answer that correctly, you could have gotten a job at PayPal um, in in the '90s. But um, I think that's I think that's it. I mean, we talked about uh, sort of the backlash that he faced in Silicon Valley um, after supporting Trump, um, you know, and and uh, and and uh, Jeff Bezos obviously made that that comment. Uh, Peter Thiel's a contrarian. Contrarians are usually wrong. Um, and uh, and the the closer he got with with uh, figures like Bannon, the more he he pushed people away. He's he's someone who um, is is calculated and conniving, and he'll he'll you know he'll, he'll remember he'll remember a slight. And in that way, he is very similar to Trump. But you can't deny the fact that he's been otherworld otherworldly. Is that a word? Otherworldly. He's been an otherworldly successful inve- investor. You know, he recognized his talent before anyone else. He is a futurist in that respect. He bought into Facebook um, when they were a startup. He, you know, five hundred thousand um, dollars to sit on their board uh, to be an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. He, you know, he created um, the precursor to PayPal. Um, and eventually it was sold to eBay. He, he founded Palantir. He invested in all of these startups, all of these companies um, before they were you know, billionaire, billion-dollar unicorn companies when they were just basically startups and he was almost like an angel investor. He, he invested in, in companies like Stripe, which a lot of you may know, the, the, the payment platform, with Lyft, with Spotify, um, with Uber, with, with Facebook. So he has a knack for... For identifying, um, for identifying talent and and for in- investing and and his book I haven't read his book Zero to One, um, but it's it's an essentially an, an account of how to be successful in 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 business and Max mentioned something about how he, he believes monopolies are good um, so sort of a an interesting uh, an, an interesting philosophy at the center of the book um, though it does run counter to his whole. You know, to his whole like libertarian mindset. That that was also something that's inter- interesting about my conversation with Max is that you know he's he's someone who considers himself a libertarian. He, he supported Ron Paul in two thousand eight, um, and generally advocates for small government, um, you know, less regulation. But at the same time, you know, his his company Palantir uh, is is sort of a big government. Um, Initiative, you know, it's 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 all about gathering information on on civilians and um and you know building the the surveillance uh, the surveillance state and and that sort of contributes to the enigma of of Peter Thiel and I think that about covers um, what I wanted to share with you about the book. I mean, it was it was uh, if you haven't noticed by my <laughs> two plus hours of. Um, of, of discussion on it, I, you know, th- th- this is a topic that interests me a lot, and um, could not recommend Max's book more highly. I mean, in addition to being uh, a, a tremendous, you know, exploration of Peter Thiel, it also serves as an alternate history of Silicon Valley, and that's something that Max mentioned in the episode, and I titled my podcast episode "An Alternate History of, of Silicon Valley" because I think people see Silicon Valley as very progressive and and I, I mentioned like an open liberal environment but you know max takes takes the stance that it's actually not you know as as progressive in some ways as, as it appears to be and startups in Silicon Valley as he pontificates they're not terribly unique you know I mean he says that a lot of startups 
they're all graduates of the same colleges. The, the founders are from Stanford, Berkeley, Caltech, Harvard, and MIT. They're all backed by the same VCs. Um, and they're backing the fad of the moment, right? Like they're, they're repackaging the old economy and selling it to the new. So books with Amazon um, in the 90s, advertising with Google in the 2000s, taxis with Uber in the 2010s. So as much as we like to think um, that Silicon Valley is, is all about um, originality and, and you know newness and, and innovation, but to some degree, it just isn't, it isn't quite like that. So I appreciate Max taking the time to chat with me and definitely, uh, definitely go check out his book. So next week, guys, we are going to be moving from business and tech to another one of my favorite topics, which is neuroscience. We'll be talking about the pleasure-pain balance and why some degree of pain is actually necessary to leading a healthy life and can inadvertently lead to pleasure. We'll also be talking about neuroadaptation, hedonism, anhedonia, the roots of addiction, as well as why we're constantly seeking to distract ourselves from the present moment. I'm really excited for that episode that's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Hubs Podcast. You can follow the pod on Instagram, Nervous Hubs Podcast, on Twitter, Nervous Hubs underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Hubs Podcast. Write to the pod on email, Podcast at gmail.com. If you have not yet reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, would really appreciate if you took literally 10 seconds to drop a rating and review. To those of you who have already written reviews, uh, I read all of them <laughs> religiously, and your words mean literally the world to me. Uh, so thank you so much for doing that. I'm so excited to have the pod up and running again. And remember, if a police officer pulls you over for speeding, maybe take a page out of Peter Thiel's book and tell him that you're not sure if the concept of a speed limit makes sense. He might arrest you, but he also might decide the whole thing isn't worth his time and tell you to slow down and have a nice day. Take care and stay nervous.